Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Hear now again the blessed word of God. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, for to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you illuminate our hearts and minds by your Spirit to receive your word, and not only receive it, Lord, but to be transformed by it, Lord, that we may, it may be said of us that we are not simply hearers of the word, that this would not only be knowledge which is gained, theoretical knowledge, but Lord, that we would take it, internalize it, be transformed by it, and go and live in accordance with it, that we may be doers of the word also. Bless the reading and the preaching of your word as you promised to do. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. In 1987, there was a band by the name of R.E.M. that wrote a song with some very similar lyrics. Do any of you know it? I was going to ask if... uh, Mike, you want to stand up and sing that line for us? (laughs) Maybe not that. Yes, right. It's the end of the world as we know it. Yes, so throughout the centuries, not just in 1987, but throughout the centuries, there have been many who have echoed those words and that sentiment with predictions of the world's great and apocalyptic end. I'll give you a few references here just to stir your memory. In 1911, Halley's Comet was going to pass by the Earth, which it does around every 76 years or so. And people believed and were led to believe that a collision with the Earth was going to occur Uh, Or otherwise, if we somehow managed to escape uh, hitting Halley's Comet or having Halley's Comet hit us, uh, poisonous gases from the trail of Halley's Comet would enter into the Earth's atmosphere and kill all organic life. And, of course, as a result of that news, panic ensued. In 1999, there was great amounts of fear and panic caused by the Y2K bug or virus, if you remember that predicted a collapse, a total collapse of our technological infrastructure. And how did people respond? They responded by stockpiling resources, by panicking, uh, probably buying out all the toilet paper in Publix. It's always the toilet paper. More recently, in 2012, uh, 2012 marked the end of the first great cycle of the Mayan calendar. Do you remember that one? Many interpreted this to mean that the uh, end of the universe was at hand. And again, they responded by stockpiling resources or otherwise living uh, hedonistically, trying to fulfill all their earthly pleasures before the universe collapsed in on itself. 
And these are just a few of the many predictions that have been given over the years. In fact, scholars can go back as early as 65 AD and trace into the world predictions to that time, continuing on into our present context today. The expectation that the world is at some point going to come to an end seems to be something that most people across cultures share. We seem to have this inevitable sense that the present world, the universe as we know it, will at some point come to an end, and Christians even more so. In fact, if you go back and look at the various predictions that have been given over the course of the years, whether for better or for worse, the highest percentage of people making those, percent, those predictions uh, are Christians, at least in profession. And Christians, I must say, have historically not always approached the end of all things in godly ways. Even so... This principle or this concept or this intuition that the world is going to come to an end, this actually makes sense in light of what we believe and actually what we've just read. According to the word of God, yes, this present world will come to an end. We know this. Scripture tells us this. The world that we know it now will come to an end at that great day when our amens that we speak now are may it be so or let it be so, when those become so, At the return of Christ, our glorious King, when He comes to usher in the new heavens and the new earth that we heard in 2 Peter, when our sojourning and exile in this broken world is finally over, and we enter into the presence of our Lord there to rest with Him forever. This is the glorious end of all things that Peter here is speaking of and anticipating, and what he desires to instruct, yes, Amen. That is what we are headed for. This is what Peter wants to instruct his congregation about when he says the end of all things is at hand. The end that he has in mind is, in fact, that glorious end. And he wants us to know the return of Christ is nigh. It is near. Yet, again, even those who do not accept or believe what Scripture teaches about the end of all things, even those who reject Christ and thus reject Christ's return again, as I said, they seem to share a belief that this present world will come to an end, whether that's by catastrophic nuclear war, an alien invasion, a global pandemic, a collision with an asteroid, or so on. But the difference, or I guess I should say what ought to be the difference between the way a Christian approaches the end of all things and the way a Christless person approaches the end of all things. That difference is the concern of the Apostle Peter in our passage today. He is here to tell us there should be a difference in the way that we prepare for the end of all things. And that difference ought to be noticed by those around us. In 2014, National Geographic put out a show entitled Doomsday Preppers. Did any of you see that? Well, in that show, they follow around a number of eccentric folks. We'll we'll say eccentric. Uh, But these folks express this uh, uh, understanding or intuition that the world is coming to an end. And as the show follows them around, it shows them again, preparing much like others did throughout uh, history. They build underground bunkers. They stockpile resources, guns, and food, and they hunker down in their fortifications until the apocalypse blows over like a bad storm. Now, that's one kind of typical response. 
That's, that's one kind of typical response to the way people approach the end of the world. But there is another, too, that we need to mention as well as we begin this morning. And it's a response that was as prevalent in Peter's day as it is in our own. And it can, in one sense, be summarized by a phrase that you've heard uh, not from First Peter, but from First Corinthians 15.32. John quoted this for us, I think, last week, if not the week before. You've heard this phrase before, and I'm sure you've seen it practiced. Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So one response to the end of the world is to bunker down, stockpile resources and wait till it's over. But another response is to eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we will surely die. What was Paul's point in quoting that pagan literature? Well, as John explained, if the Christian hope of the resurrection is a false hope, if the resurrection is not true, not only are we of all people most to be pitied, but the, the result of there being no resurrection means this world is all we have. All we have to live for is right here and right now. And so rather than The conclusion to that is rather than living for some non-existent glory that's supposed to come later, what we ought to be doing is just maximizing our pleasure in this earth. And so thus we eat and thus we drink and thus we merrily distract ourselves from that end of the world with all the fleeting pleasures that the world has to offer. This was prevalent theology about the end of the world and existence of God in Peter and in Paul's day. If you look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4, you'll see that very thing. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, but no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Look at verse 3 here. For the time that is past is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles, unbelievers, want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I wonder if that describes our present context. I wonder if that describes the temptation of our hearts. Would Peter need, let me ask you this, would Peter need to give such instructions to the church if they were not tempted towards these things when considering the end of the world? We should not be so naive to think that we are not tempted to respond that way, to see this world as all there is, to have a kind of tunnel vision that keeps us from viewing things in light of eternity to come. We are all tempted to live like Christ isn't coming back. And the thrust of every temptation of sin, every temptation of sin that we experience is away from the gospel of Christ and towards the same kind of idolatry and hedonism that is depicted here. Peter says the time for such things is far past. It's time to put off the works of darkness and put on the light of Christ. What I want you to see and to consider this morning as we enter into this text is that as a Christian, your response, our response to the end of all things is to be decidedly different than both of these responses, both of the doomsday preppers who hunker down and just wait for things to blow over, as well as those who live like practical atheists. We are capable of living like both Peter wants to tell us here that there is a far better way, and that is the way that we are after. 
I want you to understand that besides, in, in terms of the context here in which Peter is writing, understand that besides this congregation's own personal temptations to sin and idolatry, they were also presently, at the moment of this letter being written, they were suffering under almost a constant threat of persecution and, and threat of death at the hands of the Roman government. So much of Peter's first epistle here is concerned with suffering because the church was suffering. And for them, I think we're assured by the content of this epistle, for them it felt very much like the end of all things, the end of the world as they knew it. And yet what I find incredibly convicting but also very encouraging is that what Peter instructs them on here, what he commends them to is not to fear and fortification. He doesn't say, bar your doors, bunker down, and wait for the storm to blow over. Nor does he give them license to go and live in debauchery and hedonism. But instead, what he offers is simple and yet profound instructions and commendations to prayer, to love and brotherly affection, to hospitality, and to service and stewardship for the kingdom of God. In light of the end of all things, those things sound awfully simple, don't they? And yet what Peter wants us to know is that through those things, the Lord will use those ordinary means to transform lives in anticipation for his great return. What Peter commends the church to do, what he commends us to do, is to practice radical, yet ordinary, faithful gospel living. So that is where we are headed. Let's turn to look at each of these instructions in turn. I want you to call this, if you're a note taker, I want you to write at the top of your notes, a Christian's doomsday prep list. A Christian's doomsday prep list. This is how you, brothers and sisters, can prepare for the end of the world as we know it. The first instruction we are given, be self-controlled, and sober in prayer. Be self-controlled and sober in prayer. Paul, uh, Peter gives us these two imperatives in verse 7. He says, be self-controlled, can also be translated be alert or be clear-minded, and be sober. Really not a better translation. It's be sober. Now, most of you know that I serve at the Anchorage, which is a Christian drug and alcohol rehab center for men. And I can tell you, having ministered there for going on, I think, five years now, that biblical imperatives and commands like these hit a little bit differently for men who are wrestling through severe addictions to drug, drugs and alcohol. And the reason why is because they know, intimately know, the cost of self-control and sobriety. For many who come to the Anchorage and experience that first week of withdrawals as their body is freeing itself of those chemical substances, and for all of them, really, who who are going to face the temptation for the rest of their lives, probably, to go back to a way of life that they may have known since they were kids. They understand that when a biblical command comes to be self-controlled and alert and sober, they know when that's given, it's a weighty command. They understand that there's great cost in obedience to that command. If those men are tested at the anchorage and found to have any substance in them, they're kicked out of the program. Now, thankfully, praise God that what makes the anchorage ministry 
particularly rewarding and God-glorifying and just a joy to participate in is that many of those men, not all, but many come to find that however great that cost of obedience is, it is far better, it's a far better life lived than the one that they were living in the darkness of addiction. And it is such a joy to watch those men find life and life abundant in Christ. But they know what it means when they read those biblical commands, be self-controlled and be sober. Now, for those of us who perhaps have not struggled with drug and alcohol addiction, what, what, is, what is the great challenge to these imperatives for you? I actually do want you to consider a question. What, what are perhaps your addictions? Often when I'm teaching or preaching at the Anchorage, I mention that in reality, all people struggle with different kinds and different levels of addiction. The reason the men are at the Anchorage is because their particular addictions are considered illegal under federal law. But there are countless people who never end up in rehab who are addicted to things like Amazon and online shopping. Pornography that nobody sees. Food, technology, money, wealth, reputation, work, entertainment, their own narcissism and self-promotion. These categories are often far less addressed than addictions to drugs and alcohol and yet are no less harmful to your soul. No one is federally mandated to attend rehab for an addiction to their phone or their social media accounts. But do you know what? Science has proven that our brain responds the same way to our phones as it does to some drugs. Addiction, I would say, at least in one sense, is misdirected worship. It's the result of being a slave to self rather than a slave to Christ. It is at its root idolatry. And brothers and sisters, we all need rehab for idolatry. That's why we're here. This is our rehab for our idolatry. And the answer, the antidote, the solution is Christ. It's true, many of us will never sit in the pews of the Anchorage Chapel as clients or even attend an AA meeting. But we all, brothers and sisters, must endeavor every single day to put to death the addiction of idolatry. We must endeavor every day to be of sound mind and to live soberly so that we are not drawn in to a lifestyle which lives as this Christ never came and God does not exist. If we truly believe that Christ is coming back and could return at any moment, I think that ought to affect these imperatives. We ought to take them much more seriously than we do. We ought to pursue alertness and sobriety. We just heard in our gospel reading, right? The scriptures tell us that when Christ comes, we don't know the day or the hour at which he will return. What will he find us doing when he does return? Christ commended us to be the faithful servants that are found awake and prepared when the master returns. Peter here, out of personal experience... He heard those words from Christ himself. He's also commending us and commanding us to be watchful, to be devoted, to be undistracted, undistracted in our living for Christ until he returns. And did you notice the qualifying phrase that gets attached here to our self-control and sober-mindedness? It says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. 
We are to be self-controlled, that is alert and sober for the purpose of being in prayer. About two weeks ago, I was preaching a sermon from 1 Timothy 6 on godly contentment. And at the end of that sermon, I gave some ways or some practical ways that we can cultivate godly contentment. And one of those was practiced prayer, emphasis on practiced. Likewise, if we want to cultivate a kind of heavenly mindedness, if we're seeking to prepare our hearts and minds for the return of Christ, if we want to order our affections, if we want to flee from sensuality that we get bombarded with on an everyday basis through every medium the world and Satan can throw at us, if we want to align ourselves with the will of God, and if we do truly desire to seek first the kingdom of God above all else, that work, brothers and sisters, is going to be done. It will be done. It must be done through practice prayer. And there's discipline that's required for us to get to that point where we can practice prayer. Did you notice that? It says that we ought to pursue self-control and sobriety for the sake of our prayers. Or in other words, so that we can pray. We cannot expect to come to a point of disciplined and meditative prayer in a moment. It does not just come to us like that. Our natural response is not first to pray. Our natural response is self-dependency. Tell me I'm wrong. It has often been used, I've used this as advice as well, that we ought to pray as if we're having a conversation with God. And brothers and sisters, I would say in terms of familiarity, yes. We have the great privilege of calling out to God as Abba, Father, because of Christ. Because Christ has made us sons and daughters of the Most High God. So in terms of familiarity, yes, I can have a conversation with God and praise the Lord for that. At any point in the day, I can pray without ceasing because of Christ. But I, I, I want to say this, that we, we cannot expect that fruitful prayer, that meditative prayer, that really beneficial prayer will come as easy as starting a conversation. Just consider for a moment, how, consider the endless distractions and overwhelming influx of entertainment and jam-packed busyness of our schedules. Consider for a moment how all those work together against your devotion to prayer. These are often our biggest excuses for why we don't pray, right? We get distracted. We spend our effort and energy in hobbies that we love, but we can't find time to pray. We're so busy in the week that we neglect to spend time with the Lord. And then we wonder as the end of the week approaches why we feel that sense of longing and imbalance. This past week was teacher training for us at Bind Christian School. It's my first time teaching, so I, had, I needed a lot of training. Uh, we were there working, I think, probably on average about 10 hours a day. And then we'd come home to more evening activities. You know what suffered during that time? My morning prayer and devotion. You know who suffered for that? Me. I found myself trying to dip into a well that wasn't filled. Because I had not spent time with the Lord, depending upon His strength and His constancy and His love and His affirmation, the feelings of anxiety and stress and people-pleasing and self-dependency were almost overwhelming. Praise God that there were others praying for me. My wife was praying for me on the first day of class, and I felt it, and I noticed it. You see, even there, God uses the faithful prayers of other people who are being obedient to God's command to pray to support those of us who are neglecting to do it. Praise God for prayers. 
Brothers and sisters, we must answer these imperatives given to us from Peter here by actively pursuing clear-mindedness, self-control, and sobriety so that we can pray so as to live faithfully in these last days. And you know what's really cool is that as we pray, that cycle, it, it kind of circles in on itself, right? We pray, and in turn, our prayers strengthen us in our alertness and self-control and sobriety. In contrast to the end of the world, hedonism that promotes sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, Peter says instead that you ought to pursue self-control and sobriety so that you can pray. If I had to sum up what he's saying here, I I would put it this way. Peter says, stay awake. And that applies to your personal devotion and prayer life as it does to you here this morning in church. Stay awake. And what more appropriate person to tell us to stay awake than one who very much uh, uh, who failed to do so at a very crucial moment. What were Jesus' words to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember? This is Matthew 26. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's true. This is true for Peter as it is for us. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pursue self-control and sobriety. Be sober and self-controlled in prayer. So first on your Christian doomsday prep list, be self-controlled and sober in prayer. Next in verse 8, Peter says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly or deeply, since love covers a multitude of sins. So we'll call this, this is number two on the Christian doomsday prep list. Love deeply, forgive often. Love deeply, forgive often. Peter's words above all here mean that we ought to pay special attention to this command. If you've read through Scripture enough, you'll notice that there's three words that are often given together that are kind of the core tenets of Christianity. What are they? Faith, hope, and love. These are often mentioned in both Paul and Peter's epistles. And Peter here highlights love as central to how we ought to live in these last days. And that really should come as no surprise. The center of our faith is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it is Christ who is God's full expression of love unto us. My mind thinks of Romans 5, 5, which says the love of God has been poured into our hearts through God's Spirit. The love, the fullness of God's love has been poured into our hearts by and through His Spirit. Not only does Scripture as a whole declare God's love for us and unto us in Christ, but it also tells us, giving us commands and imperatives that follow because of that, that we ought to love others with the measure of love that we have been shown. And it is this fact that concerns Peter here. You see, what, what tends to happen when we suffer, when we experience difficulty and trial, what, even just everyday stress, what, what do we do? We usually get introspective, we turn inward, and we kind of close up, right? We isolate, we withdraw from people, we push people away as a kind of protective measure. And this is true not only when we're fighting external battles in terms of difficult circumstances and trials, but we do it when we're dealing with sin because we don't want other people to see the blackness of our hearts. We don't want other people to see the ugliness that is within. And so we cover up 
Our first instinct is not to be honest and is not to be vulnerable with others, but it is to cover up and to hide. But what Peter is advocating for here and commanding us to, this is not a suggestion, it's a divine imperative. What he desires is that God's body, the church on earth, would be a kind of community where vulnerability and love is free to be expressed. He goes on to say, right, that that kind of love is indicative of our pursuit of God. Uh, In other words, that kind of love for one another is indicative of how much we love God. Peter says that we ought to love with the measure of love that we have been shown. Just as the Apostle John will also say, we love because he first loved us. That's not only true of our love for God, it is true for our love of others. And notice the practical effects of this kind of love on the community of Christ. Peter says that kind of love, Christ-centered love, it covers over a multitude of sins. It covers over a multitude of sins. This statement echoes other scriptures like 1 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6, that says love keeps no record of wrongs. The Christ-centered love does not highlight somebody's faults and someone's sins. A Christ-centered love does not delight in evil, delights in the truth. Another, Proverbs 10, 12, says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. Now, what's really interesting here, I, I, I mentioned that you know, our response to trials and, and difficult circumstances and sin, even our response is to hide, conceal, close up and cover up. But what does Peter say here? He says that it is love and godly affection expressed in community that actually covers over sin like a bandage on a wound. Our role is not to atone for sin. That is Christ's role. But our role is to love with that love that Christ has given us to put as a salve on an open wound. The phrase love covers over here can also mean stretched. And so I want to ask, brothers and sisters, how might we stretch out the love of God to cover over the sins of our brothers and sisters? Not in a way that hides, but a way that exposes the grace of God in each of our individual lives. I think we can do so as in the language of that great prayer which Christ taught us to pray by asking God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The foundation, as I've said, of our love, the grounds of our love is the love that we have been shown. Because we have been forgiven much in Christ, we can forgive much of others. And Peter has some wisdom to offer us in that area. He has first-hand experience. In Matthew 18, Peter asks Jesus, just love Peter, love the honesty of Peter here, Lord, how often ought I to forgive my brother who sins against me? How many times do I have to forgive that person that has hurt me and injured me and sinned against me? Christian, how many times do you have to forgive your brother and sister? Is it seven times, Lord? You can almost hear the incredulity in Peter's voice, like seven's a lot. Seven times? And what does Jesus say? Not seven times, but 77 times. You can just see Peter kind of falling back in his chair. 
And of course, Jesus, they're not speaking even of a number, but speaking of a magnitude of love expressed in forgiveness that keeps on forgiving. Christ is a fountain of forgiveness ever flowing. If we're dipping and bathing in that fountain, ought we then to forgive in the way that Christ has forgiven us? Consider for a moment the kind of anguish that Peter felt in his sin when he denied his Lord three times. He wept bitterly. And yet, he was restored. Can you imagine the joy of Peter being restored by his resurrected Lord after denying him three times before he went to his death? I think Peter knew well what it means to have love cover over a multitude of sins. And if, brothers and sisters, if we're not forgiving, if we're not willing to forgive, it's because we have too high a view of ourselves. It's because we don't understand the depth of our sinfulness. Because the person who has understood how desperately they need the forgiveness of God, the person that has often gone to the throne of grace to plead for the forgiveness of God in Christ, that will be the person who is willing to forgive the one who comes to them pleading and asking for forgiveness. So let us, in the spirit and love of God, let us be a congregation that does not delight in gossip and in pointing out the faults and sins of others, but let us be a congregation that bears one another's burdens, that welcomes in the one who is struggling and feels alienated and shameful and isolated because of their sin. Let's help one another out in stretching out that love like a fitted sheet. You ever tried to put a fitted sheet on by yourself? It's much easier when others are helping. Let's stretch out that love and cover over the sins that we all struggle against. When Christ returns, may he find us doing just that. So second on the Christian doomsday prep list, love deeply, forgive often. Peter's going to give us uh, yet another tangible expression of this love. And I think this one particularly hits home, and that's pun intended. This is how we can demonstrate God's love to others. This is our third on the Christian Doomsday prep list. Be joyful in showing hospitality. Be joyful in showing hospitality. Remember that I mentioned the context of 1 Peter is, at this time, the early church was under severe threat of persecution, even death at the hands of the Romans. And as the attitudes of the Romans began to shift against Christians, so then did the attitudes of the general population... An early Christian writing demonstrates that they were fearful often of even walking in the city streets late at night. It was hard to trust your neighbors if they were sympathizers with the Roman government. Even Christian worship eventually had to go underground. Literally, we have records of Christians worshiping in the catacombs. How, how, how would you guys like to go worship in some tombs? That was their context. And yet, in the midst of that environment, right, there is potential threat of death for your faith and for practicing the tenets of your faith. Even so, what does Peter say here? He says, show hospitality. Befriend others. Have people over. Bring them into your home. Share a meal together. Let them stay overnight with you. Oh yeah, and do it without complaining. Now, if Peter's expectation 
is that the congregation would show that kind of hospitality in the midst of such difficult and tumultuous circumstances. Let me ask you, what is our excuse? My house isn't clean. There's dog hair and laundry everywhere. We're too busy. Our table can't fit that many people. I don't own a table. There's always that one person who stays way too late, and I've got to go to bed early. I don't know what to fix. And what if I make something that they don't like? They have noisy kids. I don't agree with their political views. My dogs will bark the entire meal. I don't want other people's germs in my house. Excuse after excuse. And yet, under the threat of persecution and death, you know what Peter says? Show hospitality. What would he have to say about our excuses? Do not underestimate the value of Christian hospitality. I can tell you this for a fact. If two seniors in college had not taken a vested interest in me as a freshman in college, brought me to church, brought me into the homes of welcoming church members who fed me, cared for me, listened to me, and encouraged me in my walk with Christ and put up with all my stupid before Christ antics, if they had not done that, I probably would not be standing here before you today. I can say that. Hospitality demonstrates a simple but powerful act of love that God often uses to transform strangers into saints. Hospitality is not grand, it's genuine. If you've not read Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, I highly recommend it. Rosaria was a far left-wing feminist, a wonderful English scholar, who was deep in the throes of the LGBTQ community. And in that book, she tells the story of a pastor and his wife who initiated contact with her via letters, invited her into their home, and over the course of several years, just hosted her around the table for warm meals and gospel conversations. They answered her questions time and time again and fed her a warm meal. And because of their willingness to reach out to her and invite her in and show her hospitality, Her life was utterly transformed, and the Lord is now using her to do incredible things for the kingdom of God. So I want to challenge you this morning, because Peter's words are challenging enough, but I want to challenge you, because I believe these words should be received by us as a challenge to our westernized individualism. We like our space. We should also receive it as a challenge to our culture of Uh, Southern hospitality, which, if we're honest, sometimes is a lot more like entertaining than it is like hospitality. I want to challenge you to invite someone over, whether an entire family or an individual from this congregation. I want to challenge you to invite them over to your home for a meal this month. Not because I want you to check the box of obedience, but because, again, I have personally experienced how, how, how life-transforming that could be. To just have somebody take an interest to say, let me cook you a meal. Let me do something for you, even though you can do nothing in return for me. If you don't have a home, take someone out to lunch. If we want to grow in unity as a body, this is a must. It's not a suggestion. It's a divine imperative. Show hospitality. And then I want to challenge you next month to invite someone who is not a part of our congregation for whom Northgate will receive no benefit whatsoever. Invite someone 
who disagrees with you. Invite somebody who has questions. Invite them into your home. Sit them down and have a meal together. Show them what the gospel working itself out in love looks like. If we are a family, shouldn't we be inviting people to Christ's table? And I want you to do this without grumbling or complaining. That's the harder part. (laughs) We can have people over, right? We can rush around and clean up the dog hair. We can put away the laundry. We can do all that. But but to do it without complaining and grumbling? Yes. Do it joyfully. Share out of the abundance of what you have received. And just watch. Just watch what the Lord can do with genuine acts of hospitality. I guarantee you, it will bind us together in unity as a congregation. And it, the Lord will use it to draw outsiders who are not a, currently a part of the fold of God into the flock of God's own pasture. It's the end of the world. It's the end of all things. So host a dinner and proclaim Christ over some good spaghetti. Finally, last on our Christian doomsday prep list is this. Faithfully steward God's gifts of grace in service. This is really a continued outworking of Peter's command to love, but here it's expressed in service. Service is an act of love. And these various acts of service that were given in Scripture are determined by the specific gifts and capabilities that God has given so that we might glorify His name in serving His kingdom here on earth. The language of uh, Peter here, particularly in verses 10 through 11, kind of models 1 Corinthians 12, right? Where Paul is speaking about the different members of the body and the spiritual gifts of the body. And one of the points that Paul makes over and over again is that while the body of Christ is diverse in membership and in gifting, it's unified in purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to bring glory to God and to serve the common good or the building up of the church. Glorify God and build up the church. Peter is saying something very similar here, and he indicates that the source of our giftings is God, who out of the abundance of His grace gives us these specific abilities, not so that we can sit on our laurels and thank God that He gave us gifts and abilities, but put them to use for the kingdom of God. Understand This has been helpful for me to work through as well, that both Peter and Paul make a point to emphasize that not everyone shares the same gift, and according to God's plan, that's good and that's right. In the body of Christ, there are various members, and they all have essential and unique functions, so that the eye, right, cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Each member is essential And each member must carry out their God-given function so that the body can function properly. And so Peter says, whoever God has gifted to speak must speak to glorify Him and build up the church. Whoever God has gifted to serve must serve and to glorify Him in building up the church. He doesn't give us an exhaustive list here, but he doesn't need to. right? The, The principle is this, the point is this, that faithful living at the end of all things means faithful stewardship of the gifts and abilities that God has given you. Don't be the servant that takes his talent and buries it in the sand. 
God has placed you here for the purpose of building up not only this body locally, but also for the purpose of contributing, right, to the body of Christ as a whole. You have unique giftings that are essential and necessary for the household of God. Don't deprive us of those gifts and abilities. When you remove yourself from the body, from the congregation, when you remove yourself from participating in the work of the kingdom of God, we're told in Scripture the body suffers. Take those gifts and capabilities that God has given in His varied grace and build up the household of God. Speak and serve and steward the grace of God well. Do it for the glory of God and for the building up of God's church. But we come to the end of our Christian doomsday prep list. Peter has instructed us on what God expects us to be busy with as we await his return. Let me give you these again. First of all, we're to be self-controlled and sober in prayer. We're to love deeply and forgive often We're to be joyful in showing hospitality, and we're to faithfully steward God's gift of grace in service. Now consider how radically different those things are than the image of the doomsday preppers that we spoke of in the beginning. Consider how radical and different that these, these things are as opposed to the hedonistic living that was going on in Peter's day and is going on in our day. There's no guns and gas masks and toilet paper here. Just prayer, love, joy, and service. This is the Father's business that we as Christians ought to be about. And take encouragement in this. I want you to notice this as well. In verse 11, Peter says this, We will do this not by our strength, not in depending upon ourselves, but by the strength that God supplies. St. Augustine has this great prayer that I often repeat. He says, O God, give, I'm sorry, O God, command what you will and give what you command. O God, command whatever you will of me, but then give me what I need to fulfill that command. God will supply us with all that we need to glorify him. And unto what end, as Peter says here, in order that in everything, in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. For to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. You see now that the end of all things, the end of the world as we know it, is not something that we need to fear or panic or despair about. The end of all things is the fruition of our hope. It's the day when our faith turns to sight. The end of all things comes at the return of our glorious King who is now, who always was, and will always reign forever and ever. So the end of all things, brothers and sisters, is the glory of God in Christ Jesus. I commend you to live towards that end. May you live to hear these precious words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which instructs us in righteousness and holiness. Shows us, Lord, both our unworthiness in sin and yet our worthiness in Christ. Lord, we depend upon you for all good things. 
And we know that it is only by your spirit that we will live righteously in these last days. And so we ask, O God, that you would give all that you have commanded. You would supply us with what we need to live, live faithfully, and live well in these last days. Help us to be self-controlled and sober in our prayers, Lord. Help us to love deeply and forgive as we have been forgiven. Help us to be joyful in hospitality, in loving others who could do nothing for us in return. And help us, Lord, to faithfully steward the gifts of grace which you have given to us for the building up of your church and for your glory. Amen. Let it be so. Let's stand together and sing as our closing hymn, All Glory Be to Christ.